0: Hola, pod peeps, across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew.
1: Hello, this is Deacon Drew. It's been a while since we've spoken. How are you two doing? Doing good, I guess. (laughs) That <laughs> dumb, and happy just
0: the
2: way we planned it, you know? Well, Hey, this is Deacon Tom. Mom. I'm doing well. That was Deacon Dennis, so uh, you have to guess how well you're doing. that, uh, that That's an open question. Yeah, you know, yeah. You should well, be more specific about, about you p- it. You picked up on that, huh? That's good for you. <laughs> good well, for you. I
1: just want to remind you all that there is a, uh, a very important line from a very important movie that goes, fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. So
2: as long as you're not
1: there then maybe you're doing pretty well.
2: So why I went no, with that's not fat, bad. dumb and happy. Exactly. I, I got the dumb and happy doc. That's know. right. We're working out of fat. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I got the dumb getting fat. <laughs>
2: it it happens but, without even trying. Well, yeah. I'm pretty happy. Well I asked am so reco- where are you
1: where are you guys, you know, I mean, you move back and forth, you're up and down, you're <laughs> yeah, all around. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah I, yeah. I just I just hang out here in New Jersey, which yeah. is the garden yeah. state as we mm-hmm. call it. So where where are you guys right now? Why would you
0: go anywhere if you're in New Jersey?
1: That's the point. I know. We have everything.
0: We have what, everything. Beaches, what egg, mountains. What exit are you, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're from Jersey? What exit? Yeah. Well, it's the end of summer, and so we are packing up the little uh, clam shack up here on the lake in Connecticut, getting ready to move back to uh, Florida uh, for the uh, winter. And, uh, you know, the grandkids are back in school, so... Grampy's Day Camp. We put the boat away. We're cleaning up, packing up, and getting ready to migrate with our feathered friends down south and to join Deacon Tom. That's what we're kind of doing now.
2: Yeah, and I've landed now. We've done our traveling up north through Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Virginia, West Virginia, and Maryland, and where else? North Carolina. So we landed back here. It's nice when your to say, I remember you. <laughs> 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 so uh, life is good. We're settling back in. And down here in Wikiwachi, I used to joke with my friends. Right. Um, Sounds Hawaiian. Islandy, right? Yeah. That, uh, but no, we're, we're halfway down the state, I guess, an hour north of Tampa. Lovely, lovely little community on the Gulf and enjoying it. But it's been warm and we've been getting probably the most powerful storms that I've seen since we've been here in mm. the last night. And they're minutes. late, yeah. too.
0: They're late. Yeah. They're yeah, late. They should be almost strikes. over. They're just starting.
1: Yeah. And you know, um, you bring up storms in my heart. And I know yours does too, goes out to Puerto Rico. Oh, God. uh, Those poor people again. As we record this, we're about a week, I think, past the last hurricane that hit them, and the entire island went out. I think they have, last I heard, I think 60% of the people have power Mm -hmm. back. But that's 40% of all the people in Puerto Rico who have no power and no running water. It's just.
0: And it's all the people in the country, and they tend to be elderly. The kids have left the villages. So putting the mess back together and digging out is all
1: these old sick people, it's really it's really criminal. It really is I, really I, I, I've been praying for them and I would ask that our listeners offer up a prayer for the yeah. people of Puerto Rico. Absolutely. Indeed.
2: I, I heard last night and again I haven't verified, but it said that only twenty percent of the money from five years ago has been spent. And, I just heard that. Right, I just heard I, I, it, so again. And I think part of our show is to reach people and to talk about our Catholic faith and what it has to do with everything that's going on. And I think that's a a good segue into our guest today, which is a man who is very involved in Catholic social teaching, uh, Dr. Anthony Annette. And he has a presentation and has some thoughts on how we turn these crises in light of our Catholic uh, social teachings of working together, cooperating with each other, and trying to work and to build our spirituality through some of our Catholic social teachings. So we're we're glad to have him here today, and he's gonna be talking about some of the problems that we face, how we got to this position, and how the economic reality around us can help solve some of our, our problems.
1: I'm really looking forward to hearing it because, unfortunately, I was unable to attend that interview. But what, you know, give us a heads up, like what kind of things did you all get into in that? Obviously, you know, the social teaching impacts, like you said, Tom, things all over the country. So what can we expect? There's a bunch of interesting things about him. Lovely guy, first of all. But this
0: guy is a Ph.D. economist. And he's from Ireland. He's got a little bit of an accent, which is real easy to listen to. So PhD from Columbia in economics. This is a guy who knows, (laughs) who's forgotten more than, than anybody listening to this knows. Not only that, this guy spent 16 years, I believe it was, In the International Monetary Fund, now these are the players. These are the people that go to Davos. These are the people that meet with heads of state and this and that and set policy around the world, economic policy, and help countries get out of debt or or whatever. And and not only that, but wait, there's more, as they say, in the late-night infomercials. This guy was the speechwriter for two IMF directors Dominique Strauss-Kahn, and Christine Lagarde. So for all you fans that watch Fareed Zakhar on CNN on Sunday morning, you saw those people all the time because these are the players that make stuff happen on a global scale, and certainly on national scales. And Tony was their speechwriter, which means that he was talking to all the bigwigs. He understands all these issues. He is not a lightweight is what I'm saying. I'm a lightweight he's not a lightweight. And he has written this book, Cathonomics, Catholic and Catholic economics, basically. Cathonomics, where he talks about how you could make the world different by taking these principles that are taught, that are part of our doctrine, and applying them to economics. This could be the way forward for the planet in terms of sustainability. So this is not pie in the sky. This is a guy who knows the current system, what's wrong with it, and he's saying. Pope Francis has actually got the right idea. So it's really amazing because it's just such a well-done book. And the book's not hard to read either. Even I could
2: read it. And I did one class in economics, which I've long forgotten. I'm looking forward to this interview. And uh, I just recommend for anybody who preaches to unpack this uh, great Catholic secret, the Catholic social teachings. It's so good, so much food for thought. It will really open up our minds to what we've experienced without even thinking about it, Way our economy works and how um, it could be tweaked to be a lot better to work for more people, which is a whole Catholic teaching here: we're all in this together, the common good. You know, words that are being challenged today. Tony breaks this open in a fantastic way, and uh, this would be a good way for churches and parishes to to get together with small groups and, and unpack this. So, okay, so I let's, highly recommend let's, let's Let's
0: go to the interview so Drew can find out yes. what you and I already
2: know. Tom, what do you think? Yeah. I think that's an excellent idea. All right. Fasten your seatbelts, folks. Here we go. This is Deacon Tom, and with me today is my co-host, Paulist Affiliate, Deacon Dennis. And today we're happy to have as our guest, Dr. Anthony Annette. Dr. Annette is a senior advisor at the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, and a Climate Change and Sustainable Development Advisor to Earth Institute at Columbia University. He has a PhD in Economics from Columbia University and a Master of Letters from Trinity College, Dublin. Dr. Ned has spent nearly two decades in the International Monetary Fund, where he has worked as a speechwriter to the Managing Director. Dr. Ned is a tireless and influential advocate for incorporating Catholic social teaching within our current economic system, and the climate crisis we are facing. Earlier this year, Georgetown University Press released Dr. Nett's enlightening and richly documented book, *Cathonomics*: how Catholic tradition can create a more just economy. Welcome, Dr. Nett. Nice to see you today. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. We understand that you are such an advocate for Catholic social teaching. How did you come into this relatively obscure part of our teaching?
3: Yeah, well, I grew up in Ireland as a cradle Catholic, but I was never that knowledgeable or interested in Catholic social teaching. I went to Columbia University to do my PhD in economics, very much in the neoclassical economics paradigm, very traditional. And really, I guess my conversion story, if you want to use that term, happened after the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, when It dawned on me that this was not just a technical, economic, and financial crisis that required merely technical solutions, but this was a profound moral crisis that required a complete restructuring of how we envision the economy. And that got me interested in Catholic social teaching around that time. I started doing a lot of reading and research, and I came to the conclusion that the principles of Catholic social teaching. Are actually a, a far healthier and more sustainable set of principles upon which to build the kind of structure of the global economy we want. So that's kind of where I came from. And then I guess I wrote Cathonomics during the lockdown. And I was very grateful to Georgetown University Press for agreeing to take a chance and publish it. Well, it's a phenomenal work, phenomenal work
0: indeed. I, I loved it. And I used to, in one of my careers, Dr. Annette, I was a high school religion teacher that used to teach Catholic social teaching to high schoolers, Mm -hmm. and I thought this is as clear a presentation as I have ever seen, just to the section where you go through, what are the main principles and and all that, and I said, it was a couple pages. You summarized them, I believe, beautifully, and I just, I said to Tom at the time, I wish I had this when I was teaching high school. I could have really, because it just crystallized. It was very well done, so very accessible to the average person, so that was excellent. Thank you. Let me ask you a a pertinent question at this point, Dr. Annette, because I had Economics 101 in college, so maybe correct me if I'm wrong about anything going forward today. But it seems to me, Adam Smith and everybody's self-interest and all that stuff that I recall from that course, that Catholic social teaching is presenting an alternative view of how life could be on this earth, because economics is something we made up, right? I mean, it's not a force of nature. This is what Jesus talks about when he says the world. He's not talking about nature. He's talking about the human-made world, our politics, our economics, this kind of stuff that we came up with, and that's where the problems are. The squirrels are fine. The squirrels are not causing any problem. They're doing God's will right now. So with economics, up to this point, the argument would be, if I understand it correctly, that the system is based on what we can count on, which is human selfishness and self-interest. And that's why it works. And so when you propose something like you're proposing, like the church is proposing, like Jesus proposed, and I'm all on board with it, how do we move from the current selfishness to this kind of enlightened model of economics? I mean, isn't that the real sticking point, that it's great in theory, but, you know, everybody is not going to have an Augustinian conversion
3: next week and make this happen? How would you respond to that, Dr. Annette? I would start by saying, You know, economics is kind of peculiar in its assumptions. It assumes that in our social life, we are nice, social, cooperative peoples. But once we step into the economic sphere, we become rational, cold, calculating, and self-interested. So we're like Jekyll and Hyde's. So I think Catholic social teaching would say that we're not Jekyll and Hyde's. We are a fully formed human being. We have altruistic tendencies. We also have selfish tendencies. But fundamentally, I think all the science points to the fact that human beings are wired to cooperate. We see this in psychology. We see it in neuroscience. We see it in evolutionary biology. And I talk about some of this in the book. But well, we are basically wired to cooperate. So I think the assumptions of Catholic social teaching and indeed the, the kind of anthropological assumptions of most of the world's major religions are actually more in tune with human nature than the stuff that was basically made up by economics to describe how we are supposed to act, and we actually don't. But the problem is, if you tell people they're supposed to be selfish and they're supposed to only care about maximizing their wealth, well, you kind of internalize, the risk is you internalize those values and you end up acting in a way that's, I think people like Aristotle and Aquinas would say, goes against your true human nature, goes against virtue, goes against trying to be true and good and just and all those things. Is this practical? I think it's very practical. And we can kind of switch gears if you want here because I think that if you look at the economy today, we are mired in a world that was created around the 1980s, the world of neoliberalism which basically says that the free market can achieve wonders. The free market, as long as the government gets its foot off the throat of the free market, you can achieve wonders, you can achieve massive economic growth, which will trickle down and everybody's much better off. The problem is that hasn't happened. We get instead rising inequality, we get a climate crisis, We get all kinds of social dysfunctions. We get deaths of despair. We get hollowed out communities. So we're in a very bad situation. But I would argue that in the post-war period, right after the war, you had this kind of convergence in Christian democracy in Europe, which was affiliated with Catholic social teaching and social democracy, which had a more secular background, to be honest. But they kind of, converged in economics to create something called the social market economy. So it says, yes, we can accept the market economy. We're not going to become communists. We're not going to become central planners. We can accept the market. But we want to make sure that the market doesn't suffocate people. We want to make sure that their basic needs in life are taken care of. We want to make sure that they have economic rights, that the government can provide stuff that the market can't provide. And we want to make sure that the private sector is properly regulated so you don't have massive financial crises like the Great Depression. All this stuff. And that gave rise to 30 extremely successful years. And in the book, I argue that there's a lot of overlap between this period and the principles of Catholic social teaching. So we've done it before. We've had a successful period. Though granted, if you were a woman or a minority or somebody living in A low-income country, you probably were not benefiting very much during those 30 years after the war. You can always do better. But can we recapture that moment for our present day? I think, yes, we can. There's plenty of very practical policy proposals. And one thing I wanted to do in the book was to move from kind of the theoretical principles, like the ones I spelled out, to what they would actually mean in practice in terms of policy. So I spent a lot of time Going through policies because I want people to come away from it, not thinking that this is just some airy fairy in the clouds theory, but it actually has direct relevance to how we manage the economy today.
0: Yeah, you know, the thing I always think of with Europe is that I think it was probably easier to get some unity and agreement around these things at that time because Europe was bombed out. So what do you want to do, guys? You want to let the, the, the guys who still have the money keep it, or shall we spread it around? And I think people looked around after the blitz and the the, the bombings and stuff and said, no, I think we the common good sounds good to me, and I don't think you, there was too many people pushing back on that. So I think that was the impetus for them to take a serious look at another way of doing it, and I'm just wondering... How would we do that in our time and place in America, where you still have people saying, let the market rule? I mean, it's never been better. There's no problems, even as our politics of resentment is very much about people, whether they voted for Sanders or whether they voted for Trump, that are saying, what the hell happened? You know, I mean, and it's not just me. It's everybody I know. I got a kid who went through college who can't pay back his loans and can't get a decent job that he can afford to live on his own. All my friends are out of work. The factory's closed. The town is dead. And this is like anywhere between the two coasts, this is happening. And these people are outraged. And I would say rightly so. So how do we make this start to happen? I mean, this vision that I agree with, but I mean, what's our what's going to replace what happened in Europe, where people really I don't think had a whole lot of choice. The average person is not not going to say, "Let's roll the dice and see how I come out." When they were just in dire straits and waiting for the Marshall Plan and all this other stuff, just to keep going till they could get start to build back. Do we have something? Is there what's the mechanism, or do you just think it's kind of like the people are going to have to rise up and educate themselves and realize who's telling them the truth? and vote accordingly? Or do you have any insight? Or maybe it's the climate change? What do you see, if anything, that could
3: trigger this change? I think you're right about post-war Europe. A lot of it was due to the fact that the continent was kind of in ruins and destroyed. And also you had in the U.S. too, though, you had the New Deal. You had a lot of solidarity, which came out of the kind of the collective wartime suffering. So I think a sense of kind of communal solidarity is very important. But you also had something you don't have today, which is kind of a fear of communism. If communism was promising a worker's paradise, well, the capitalist economy is better, do something to be able to compete with that. So hence you got kind of a much more activist role of the state and more of a common good approach. But today I think that my view is that neoliberalism is fading away because I think people on the right and people on the left are realizing that it was naive to think that the market alone can solve all problems. And the fact that more, in fact, the market can actually create more problems than they can solve. So I think you're seeing a convergence. You're seeing this, you certainly see it in the Sanders movement on the left. You see it in the climate movement, which is huge. And Pope Francis has been very important to that as well. But I think you're also seeing this. Less so, but still there on the right, there's a much more skepticism of kind of the standard neoliberal or libertarian talking points. And there's more willingness to say back things like pro-family policies, to actually have things like child tax credits, which actually are remarkable at reducing child poverty and protecting families. And also things like industrial policy, where the government will actually actively intervene to stimulate certain industries and sectors. That's anathema to neoliberalism because it affects the free market. But more and more people on the right are talking about industrial policy. So I think there's a lot of political noise and partisanship and polarization out there. But if you want to look at the glass half full rather than the glass half empty, you might want to point to these Very interesting points of convergence, which in a sense can lead you to be more hopeful than at any time in the past half century. So I think there's some hope. I think that Catholic social teaching can play a role and we need more Catholics to step up and present these principles and present these values as they did during the post-war period when Christian democracy was taking root or as they did during, say, When the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was being put together, you had a lot of Catholic influences on that. That moment has kind of faded away. Catholicism has kind of stepped back from kind of providing the intellectual apparatus to what kind of the global economy or the global society would look like. But I think there's a role to play. And I think Pope Francis is playing a very vital leadership role here, too. Yes, indeed.
0: And so
2: are you. That's
0: why, you're, <laughs> yeah. that's why we got you here today. Tom and I read that book. We were thrilled. We just, we were talking, did you see this? This is great. Because we've been honing our shovels for a long time. And it was like, see, and this is again, back to the regular listeners. It's people like Professor Annette that keep people like me in the church. This is why I want to hang out with people like him. So some of his goodness and his, his intelligence rubs off on me. It's just delightful to see this kind of creative thinking that you've done and stuff that, and this is on the news in every day in every way till we can't stand it in the 24-hour news cycle. This is not for people that are saying, oh, what are we doing this for? Why are you listening? This is what's going on. These are the answers to the questions of how come this and why that? And even noticing the commonality that Dr. Annette just pointed out, with what's going on between, say, the left on the Sanders movement, and I would say even on the right on Trump's movement, whatever you think of Donald Trump notwithstanding, he has been running around promising jobs in the Midwest. Now, he didn't deliver on them that I know of, but the point is that was part of his appeal because, again, these people have been forgotten. And this is the whole groundswell against anti-elitism, which even gets to the point of, I don't believe doctors who tell me I should get vaccinated. I mean, that's how far shot it is. It's like, it's really powerful. It's bubbling all over, but we still have the groups fighting each other instead of coming together and saying, well, we all seem to be saying the same thing. What can we do about it? So I think all of this is very germane to anyone that is at all attuned to what's going on in our world and why is it seem to be broiling and burning and bubbling constantly. So so I think you've done a, a real service for all of us a Dr. Annette with this. This is a very deep and and really, a lot to ponder and a lot
2: to think about. Oh, thank you for saying that. That's very kind of you. So, for our listeners, can you break open those principles that we're talking about here so they have a foundation as to what, what we mean by Catholic social teaching?
3: Sure. Basically, what I tried to do is go through the series of amazing social encyclicals written by popes, starting with Pope Leo Thirteenth and Rerum Novarum in 1891 all the way through Pope Francis in Fratelli Tutti in 2020. And I tried to distill a set of principles that would kind of act as commonalities between those rather diverse encyclicals written in very different times for very different circumstances. But nonetheless, I think you can actually distill a bunch of principles. So I'll just mention some of them. I don't want to go on too long because I listed 10 of them in the book. The first one is obviously the principle of the common good, and that's kind of the idea that we will the well-being of the other person for the other person's sake, which is very different from neoclassical economics, which says you only seek economic growth, but a kind of a true common good would mean that you need to provide for the needs of people in society, and you can't leave anybody out. That's crucial. You can't leave anybody out. Everybody has to be included in the common good. That's related to the second principle, which is integral human development, which really comes from Pope Paul VI. And that's the idea that you want the development of every person and the whole person. So you want the fullest development of people among all dimensions in life. So it's not just about making money. It's not just about accumulating wealth. It's more of a sense of vocation It's a sense of being more rather than having more. And again, that differs quite substantially from the way economics has developed because economics assumes that you're homo economicus, you're the rational economic man who's out to maximize your preferences, which are really defined as stuff you can buy with money on the market. So very different idea of development, very different idea of kind of the purpose of human life. Then related to that, that's integral human development. We also have a principle called integral ecology. This goes to Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical, Laudato Si', his wonderful, beautiful, remarkable encyclical on the environment. And there that says that we are part of nature and how we affect nature in turn affects how we impact other human beings. So if we disrupt the natural balance, we end up disrupting the social and ecological balance among human society too. Pope Francis says we need to hear the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. The next principle is the principle of solidarity, which you know is a pretty common term, a well-worn term as Pope Francis puts it. But that means something quite simple, as Pope John Paul II put it, the idea that we are really all responsible for all. It's kind of a super-highway to the common good, and it's, again, it says that you need to take care of every single person in your society and also in the whole world, because there's also such thing as universal common good defined by global solidarity. Now, solidarity is twinned with the principle of subsidiarity, which, you know, is a very misunderstood term. It's often misinterpreted as the government should have hands off." which is not really what it says. It says that decisions should be taken at the lowest level possible and the highest level necessary. Sometimes that level is the global level, as would say climate change, where problems are global. Sometimes that level is the local level, maybe with, say, education, which should be attuned more to local circumstances. And that is subsidiarity. Then there's associated with Pope Benedict XVI, there's the principle that I call reciprocity and gratuitousness. And that's in the economic sphere, you want to do something because it's good in itself. You want to give a benefit to somebody else. You want to give a gift without concern for what you're going to get back. So that's a very different idea from the Adam Smith view of the economy, which says that The common good is achieved by self-interest. It's your self-interest that everybody's self-interested acting together, which leads to kind of the greater good. Whereas Pope Benedict says that's not really right. What you should want is to give the person a gift, to give them something freely for nothing, which reflects, of course, God's gift to all of humanity. And that's the principle of gratuitousness. And then, of course, there are, Other principles, there's the universal destination of goods, which says that the goods of the earth are destined for every single person without exclusion, without exception. There's the principle of the preferential option of the poor, which says every policy prescription needs to be attuned to how it affects the least among us, goes back to the teachings of Jesus. So there's some of the basic principles of Catholic social teaching that affect how we should look at the economy.
0: Yeah, well, that that was very concise and very well done, but it's a lot for anyone to take in, especially who is hearing it for the first time. But we encourage you to just think about one or two of those things and how different it is from the world we live in.
2: And uh, uh, the spectrum of all the folks that you come in contact with, Dr. Ned, are you running into like groups of young people? Uh, is this something for the uh, younger generations that are starting to
3: embrace? Are you? How are they approaching this? Yeah, the I mean, I've been. Like at the Vatican, there's been a few gatherings there called the Youth Symposiums at the Pontifical Academy of Sciences and Social Sciences. And they bring together younger voices to actually have them speak and have them set the agenda. And those events are some of the most inspiring events I ever attend, because you see the passion, you see the genuine commitment without the sense of jadedness of the older generations so so yeah i think if we have any hope in our world today it's going to come from our young people people that can be very cynical and write off the younger generation but you know they're really a source of hope they're a source of hope for the whole sustainable development and climate change movement which is really leading global challenge today so yeah signs of hope definitely i saw
2: well i think last night's news where the owner of patagonia turned over his stock To uh, collect that will uh, manage his money and the profits that aren't reinvested in the business will go to support climate change. Is that are you seeing many companies do this? Is this is this how change begins, where leadership goes to? It's important for our world now for me to do the right thing. Are we because you talk so much about the value ethics that fell apart in the 1700s, where you know the whole idea that being an alcoholic is good for the economy because you sell more booze. I mean, I remember those kind of paradox things from the economics and, or war is good business because look at all the business we have out of that. So, yeah, how, what kind of shift are you seeing in individuals or
3: companies? That's an excellent question because, you know, in Catholic social teaching, Pope Francis is often criticized for being kind of anti market or anti business, which is actually not true. He says that business is a noble vocation, but to be a noble vocation, it has to serve the common good. So just as government is called upon to serve the common good, so business has to serve the common good. So for Catholic social teaching, unlike economics, traditional economics, it can't be just about maximizing your profits or maximizing your shareholder value. Remember, it was Milton Friedman who said that's the only role of business is to maximize the value to shareholders. Again, we're seeing a lot of change here. There's a big movement called ESG that's environmental, social and governance investing, where, you know, investors and businesses are looking at their impacts in the world when they consider investing decisions. Pope Benedict wrote a lot about this. He said, like every economic decision, every investment decision is a moral decision. So business needs to serve the common good. What Patagonia is doing, I thought was quite amazing, very impressive. We need to see much more of this. We are seeing some more of this. We're seeing ESG. We're seeing a lot of interesting initiatives that, again, are supported by Catholic social teaching, like worker cooperatives, workplace democracy, where workers sit on boards, on corporate boards, and on work councils, where they take decisions on how the firm is run. They share in the profits. All of this sounds very radical, and it doesn't have much relevance in in the U.S. economy today. In Germany, it does teaching. So my answer to your question is, yes, we're seeing a lot of positive trends in the business world, but there's so much more scope. There's so much scope to go further. And again, you know, the trajectory can be shown very clearly as what's possible by looking at Catholic social teaching.
0: You know, I wanted to ask you in this kind of thinking that you're retailing for us, Dr. Annette, among your economic colleagues, how does this play? Are you a lonely guy or have you got a fan club, or have you got a chorus behind you, or is, are you push, Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill? What, where would you say that is in your, your discipline, these kind of ideas?
3: Mm. Yeah, that's a complicated question that requires a more complicated answer. On one level, economics is still taught as it has always been taught, as I was taught it back in the 90s. In terms of the principle of homo economicus, rational economic man who's out to maximize utility and firms are out to maximize profits. And that's how you serve the common good. Of course, they would never use the term common good, but that's what they mean. But on the other hand, there is a lot of change in the air. Like one thing that I am associated with through Fordham University is a program to completely redesign how business and economics education is taught to infuse it more with ethical values, what they call humanistic values and Catholic social teaching. So this is a very specific initiative initiative for the Jesuit business schools, but there's also a broader initiative. They want to take this beyond the Jesuit business schools and kind of seed this into more of the mainstream. There is a lot of foot. There are a lot of economists are writing books with the word common good in the title. There's a growing awareness, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is because of this awareness that with all the huge problems we're facing today that came out of neoliberalism, whether it's inequality or social decay or hollowed out communities or debts of despair, we need an economics which has better values. And I think the values discussion is getting more play In economics than it ever has before. Now, I don't want to oversell that. This is still a minority position. But even like the institution I used to work for, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, even there, you will see references to, say, ethics and finance and issues like that, which you would not have seen 20 or 30 years ago. Now, these are baby steps. But, you know, I'm still, again, I like to look at the glass half-full. So I'm encouraged that a lot of people in the economics and business world are focusing on ways to do things better.
2: When you talk about that value system, I mean, it goes back to a, a simplicity of the Gospels, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus Christ talking about the Beatitudes, the Sermon at the Mount. I mean, everything else is a derivative of the kind of treatment we owe to one another that have been encapsulated in these principles of Catholic and social teaching. So IMF and places like that, are they coming from the humanitarian side or is are they kind of ignited by a sense of the transcendent, that there's more to life than this earth? and Do we have that, or is it just the humanistic values
3: that that this is the way we should be because we're human beings? It's more the latter, but also when mainstream economics talks about ethics, it can tend to be quite instrumental. And by that I mean they would argue along the lines, for example, that if you have bad ethics, you can get financial crises and massive unemployment and people could suffer. And that was the global financial crisis with too much greed, too much self-interest, too much seeking more and more, which led to a whole cavalcade of debt, which just blew up and took down.
0: And lack of regulations. Don't forget that.
3: And the Wild
0: West, baby, let it go.
3: I think that's exactly right. And, and that came out of the neoliberal agenda, that the government that, that does best does least. What was it Reagan said? The scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. (laughs) Well, you know what? After a financial crisis or after a pandemic, people want the government to help. And the government is quite capable of helping in situations like that as we learn.
0: Sure, every time you see the wildfires or tornadoes, and especially in these states that are getting most of the federal money that is coming from blue states like mine, and they're getting the benefit, not us, And then they're complaining, we don't need the government. And then something happens, and it's, where's the government? It's like, I just think that part of this is just, it's just amazingly dislocated from reality. I mean, let's, I always said when I was president, I would let one state that chose to secede from the union, and let's see how they do. Like, we're not, the FEMA's not coming for your next flood. You don't have to pay us any taxes. Well, you can be the experiment. Let's see what happens. I don't think anybody would take that. I don't think there's one. No matter what they say on TV, one one governor would say, "Yeah, I'll I'll take that offer." But you know, one of the criticisms in the reviews I read of the book was that basically what you're saying is we should all become Scandinavia. What do you respond? Is that true? Is that false? Is, do you take
3: exception to that, or is it like <laughs> the book is way more nuanced than that? I think that there are major advantages to kind of the Scandinavian model of social democracy. Everybody pays high taxes, but everybody gets benefits that are not just charity for the poor, but they're a right of citizenship. So there's no stigma attached to them. And everybody can live with high living standards and low inequality and not too many gaps between people and stuff like that. And also the Scandinavian countries, if you look at the World Happiness Report every year, they're always the happiest countries in the world. So clearly there's something that they do that's right. But the book goes more than that, because I think Catholic social teaching is not just about social democracy, even though I would argue that there are strong overlaps with social democracy. But there are other sets of policies, especially when it comes to work, that are very important, because the idea of decent, dignified work as a source of dignity and respect and meaning and purpose and identity is very important in Catholic social teaching. So you want to make sure that workers are rewarded through strong unions and collective bargaining, but also, again, through things like profit sharing and worker cooperatives and democracy in the workplace. So I think Catholic social teaching is actually somewhat more radical than Scandinavian social democracy. And if you go back to 1919 to the U.S. Bishop's Program for Social Reconstruction, It's actually quite a radical list of things, many of which still have not been implemented 100 years later. Well, Catholics in
0: this country were poor back then, so you didn't get any pushback. Being a bishop and saying, we ought to do this and that back then, that was pretty easy to get away with. Now, uh, half the church is in management, and I got mine, so not so much. We're not too worried about what the factory workers or the immigrants or whatever are getting, so… It's going to take some courage from our leadership too
2: to talk about what's right, what's wrong, what's the gospel. So we have the uh, the railroad strike. I thought I saw something looming here, and it's interesting. I thought it might not be the complete story, but how it wasn't a matter of wages; they were going to get a significant wage increase, but it was a matter of having the individual freedom and not be uh, subjected to the company mandates that you will work. Sick time. They were talking about sick time. Indeed. Yes, yeah, sick time. Which doesn't old.
0: sound crazy to me. I don't know
2: why that's well, always Well, apparently it is in some places. There's a lot of the craziness going on. Yeah. It's a privilege to be sick. Really? And then we don't have sick days, too. So,
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. You know, one of my favorite social encyclicals is one that Pope John Paul II wrote called Laborum Exercens, which is really about the rights of workers. And that's a beautiful encyclical, and it talks about many of these issues about workers are entitled to sick leave and to adequate rest and to adequate autonomy on the job and to just wages and to proper social benefits and to healthcare that should be cheap or free of charge. He used the term cheap or free of charge. So, and again, these are all very live issues today in industrial relations, but you know, Pope John Paul was there. 40 years ago, talking about all of these issues. Yeah, we have the history. It's
2: translating them into action, but we seem to be at some point now, I think maybe motivated more by the climate crisis as we start to witness day in, day out. And again, I think it's kind of like when Dennis was talking about set up a state with low government. I'm just thinking that we're seeing some of the politicians who voted against the Build Back Better plan running around to their constituents saying, Here's what you're getting out of this. It's just, it's part of the madness that's created by that uh, virtue. Let's say, how would you, years ago, you would never think of that. Like the first pictures that we had of politicians lying was a scandal. Oh, you got caught. Now they don't care. Now it's just, we're going to promise everything. We're going to do nothing. And uh, there's
0: a lot of irrationality now. But you're not going to get any justice. I mean, you're not going to get any peace if you don't have justice. That's the thing you always have to remember. People are always surprised by the turmoil and stuff. But uh, you just can't have all these people. Even I would even just like to, for our more middle class or upper middle class listeners, I'm old enough to remember when the promise of college is if one person went to college, the family was upper middle class and your wife didn't have to work. Now you have two people with master's degrees who are barely living a middle-class life and staying above water. And that's within my lifetime. So someone moved the goalpost somewhere. It wasn't the people that said, oh, I'll take that. I'll go to college. I'll be a productive
2: member of society. I'm thinking of how uh, the analogy for faith, for people being sheep, how we're led down the path. Where we don't know what we're doing. We have one leader, and if it's a good leader, it's a good thing. we got the good shepherd. But in my own experience, from economic experience, I just saw the whole issue like, how do we get to here with this acquisitive society where we're never satisfied? And you just look at how the market came into play in that, where World War II, right? We have half of our consumer goods, our consumer consumption was cut in half. Most of it was going for military production. But then we come out after World War Two, and you have this big shift into you know what used to be the layaway plan. Now the advertising says you can have it now and buy it now and pay later. So you get the layaway plan going into credit cards and debt. And then you go along, and all of a sudden, women could go to work. So now you have two income families, you go to work. Then we uncapped the house, so you could, your house became a piggy bank, and you turned around. And all this money came out of at the compromise of our personal well-being, our family life. The life of Riley had the wife at home. I mean, not that we want to Im- impose any, anything on that, but it should be a choice. I think you did an article on Twitter the other day, uh, Tony, that talked about you should be able to sustain yourself on one, one income. But that would also require a certain understanding and a basic big change that I'm going to forego consumption, that my well-being is not going to have the kind of things that we might want because we always, that's the story of economics, right? We want unlimited things. We want everything. But the reality is I want peace of mind today. And we're starting to see this in the suicide rates, all the destructive behavior that's going on. Is that, how much is that? Is a consequence of these bad choices that we just can't keep like the rats in a wheel. So the masters, uh, the geniuses behind the uh, the curtain have been a master getting us to spend everything, want more and continue this chase. All of which I think filters back to our faith. Where are we centered in our faith? What's our expectation? And how do we look at our lives in this limited journey, however many years we have to be faithful to a bigger cause than just being consumers
3: and people who acquire everything? Yeah, that's an excellent observation. You know, one thing I noticed is that there's a big divergence between wealth and well-being. Wealth does not buy well-being. I mean, United States is a fabulously wealthy country when ter- you look at the world as a whole, but there's a, a f- profound level of unhappiness. And we've, I've mentioned many times all the social problems, you've mentioned them. Yeah, so I think we need to get back to the values of integral human development, that true development is not just about maximizing our wealth, It's about being more fully formed human beings, including spiritually formed human beings, rather than just seeking more and more. But that is going to require a huge change in values because this kind of insatiable appetites, this greed has really taken root in our society. And it's going to be really hard to uproot it. It's like a weed that you can't get rid of. But, you know, the only solution is to keep on pushing and keep on pulling until you finally uproot that thing and get back to a kind of a more holistic, more sustainable, more integral view of the world. And that's where, as you said, our faith really plays a key role. You mentioned earlier, this goes back to Jesus and it does go back to Jesus and the Beatitudes and in Matthew 25 and how we're judged all about how we treat the least of these and blessed are the poor. I mean, this is basic stuff for Christians. And I think we need to be out there in the public square talking more loudly about this kind of stuff,
0: Doctor. And part of why we do this little podcast here, we try to target people that are on the threshold of the church, either on the way in or on the way out. I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about how your discovery of this and how you use Catholic social teachings and applied it to your field of economics. How has that affected your faith journey? Uh, what would you say to people on the threshold? I mean, what has been your experience? of What has this done for you? Because it's kind of the Jesuit finding God in all things, finding God in your work and bringing those two spheres together. How has it affected you? What, what, would you like to share anything about that?
3: Yeah, I think it's the last, I would say, 10, 12 years has really affected me profoundly and it has strengthened my faith because the more I learned about Catholic social teaching the more I realized that actually this has deep relevance to how we live our lives and how we structure our economy. It gets to the truth of who we are as human beings. And the truth is who we are as human beings. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We mirror the Trinity, which is pure relationality. So we become fully human only in relationship with other people. And that to me, is a deeply Christian insight, but it's also profound in terms of how we structure our society, that we are relational persons who are called to love and respect our fellow human beings. That obviously has to affect the way we structure our global economy and our global society. So I would say, yes, it kind of had a profound effect because the more I explore Catholic social teaching, the more I realize that it's rooted in the Christian view as who we are as human beings. And that's a beautiful view of human nature. And I think as a Christian, it's a true view of human nature. So that's helped my faith grow, definitely. So I would say so. Anybody on the threshold, I would say, come on in. The water is warm <laughs> and the tradition is beautiful.
0: And ladies and gentlemen, that's why you listen to the Deacon's Pod right there, because where else are you going to get a world-class economist Breaking off a little Trinitarian theology of relationality <laughs> and a little bit of Christological anthropology all right here in one, right here. <laughs> one-stop one shopping. Tom, are we amaze us? Hey, I just
2: want to put a, an end point on that whole idea of virtue. I was thinking of the movie, what is it, Wall Street? And what's the lesson from Wall Street, the classic line? Greed is good. Greed is good. So I think our, uh, our faith tells us that, by definition, is one of the capital sins. So what's a capital sin? That's an end-of-life thing. Yeah. Eh, so you can't get any worse than capital, right? Yeah, that'll kill you. Keep it and up. And so I think here, again, we could see a contrast between the way things should be and, unfortunately, the way things are now, where we have taken vices and made them virtues, uh, maximizing profits, and it's not the way it should be, and maybe with the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think uh, our church also tells us that some of these— sicknesses that we have, some of these diabolical situations that we are in require prayer and fasting. So for the steadfast people of faith who realize that we're in times that are are very challenging, ancient remedy, prayer and fasting might help. And for those people who are looking, again, there's a lot to be done, all hands on deck when it comes to any concern. A Native American friend of mine talking about nature, which you, again, you address the indigenous people in your book, too, those Amazon, the global things, what's happened in our country. But they said that their tradition, his tradition, looked seven generations down the road. They weren't acting as their own needs to be satisfied. They knew that for posterity, there had to be this whole care of creation. And I remember back in the 70s, was it? I don't know if you remember this, but they had a Native American sitting on a horse And he had a tear coming down and a whole...
0: Oh, yeah, the anti-litter
2: commercial. For litter, for litter. And boy, I can't imagine the river of tears you'd be crying now if you saw the state we're in.
0: And I, I just want to get a practical question in here before we wrap this up that I've had sitting here. Do you have, Dr. Nett, do you have any advice for the people listening? Like, what can they do with this besides... Find a politician who maybe thinks about the common good and vote for them. Is there some way we can be implementing this in our lives as individuals? Or is that going to be your next book? Because that would be a great book. Okay, here's, how, here's what to do. Here's how to do it. That, we never seem to get to that.
3: Yeah, there's some issues and ideas in Laudato Si that Pope Francis gives in terms of what he calls small daily actions that can improve how we treat the environment things like recycling, turning off the lights in your house when you're not using them, small things that don't cost you anything yet can on a macro level can have a large effect. There's how you invest your money. If you have money to invest, are you investing it ethically? Are you aligning it with your values? How you act as a consumer? Are you feeding this kind of a feverish desire for always to consume more? Or are you just kind of going for something more moderate and prudent, which is what the tradition says you should do, rather than being driven by, this, by greed and avarice. So yeah, there's plenty. I mean, a lot of what I say in the book requires structural change. If you want to solve inequality or solve climate change, you want to need government action. But there's a lot of things you can do as, as individuals, as economic actors, as citizens, as environmentalists. Plenty of things you can do, yeah. I think that changes. Once you get into
2: turning off lights, you get into these little things and you recognize what a small pitone it might be for the whole catastrophic issue. But it creates a mindset. And when we talk about, again, faith, changing hearts and minds, that's what it's about. So you turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth. You're quicker with a shower. The lights go up. It's not going to change the world, but it's like saving that starfish that's on the sea. When you go walking by, there's a million starfish it's going to help, and it counts because it changes our attitude toward the abundance that we have that we waste.
0: So you're saying, act like your parents and grandparents did when you were shaking your heads at kids, and they were saying, "Shut out the lights," and "Why are you taking so long in the shower?" Just it, what would, yeah, yeah, really. What would, what would grandpa say if my... he was here? He'd say, "Shut the water off while you're brushing <laughs> your
2: teeth." He'd say, "Good job." But in 1966, at Providence College, an economic history professor I had talked about one thing that we thought was laughable at the time, and he said one day. You'll be paying for air and for water. And boy, go to get your tire, air in your tire, put in, and then they're going to charge you a buck, a bunch of quarters that the machine never works anyhow, so.
0: And back to the economic system, I took a little trip to Guatemala with Marinol, and Guatemala has terrible water. It's undrinkable. It's literally, just full of parasites and everything like that. But the elites there, they import from the United States bottled water. And now they have a tremendous plastic problem. But they have no interest in fixing pipes for a bunch of Mayan Indians. So the poor are filled with parasites, and the rich are just creating this monstrous plastic problem. While right off their coast, Jamaica, which of course was a British domain, the Brits made sure the plumbing was good. And it's a similar situation, but they don't have this problem at all. They, you can drink the water. you can. It's like being anywhere. They have thought of that. But it's amazing how one thing begets the other. And here are the rich saying, well, we'll just import bottled water, put it on a boat. Think of what this costs. Bring it to Guatemala,
2: and then we'll just throw the plastic. This can't keep going. This can't work. It's Dr. that before we leave, I'm wondering, are you aware of any Catholic saint who might be someone who you've come across, bumped into, that has... A- I mean, they're all pretty uh, uh, austere in they're Yeah, Saint life. of
0: Cathonomics. Who's yeah. that?
3: <laughs> Anybody comes to mind? that oh, I mean, this is a cliche. Well, I guess it has to be Saint Francis, right? Who's a, who lived a simple life and was the saint of peace, the saint of harmony with nature, the saint of looking after the poor, which is exactly why Pope Francis chose that name. And it's also why Pope Francis established the economy of Francesco, this initiative of young economists and young people to kind of try and fix the global economy from the bottom up. And it's called the economy of Francesco named after St. Francis. So that would be my choice of saint. <laughs> wow. Good choice. Good choice. Indeed. Go with the winner. You can yeah? never go
0: wrong with St. Francis. <laughs> that's, I mean,
2: that's, a, <laughs> that's right. Well, Dr. Net, thank you so much for the time you've spent with us. Again, your book, *Cathonomics* is such a beautiful book, highly recommended. Outstanding. And uh, because it's not a book that you read and consume, it's a book that changes your mind and your outlook on a lot of things.
0: It's a meditation. This is a great book to read small bits on, chew on, pray on. And I want to say this, as someone who didn't study economics like Tom and Dr. Annette, I understood it, and it's very accessible. He wrote it to be read by the average bear like you and me, It's almost like a praxis of the kingdom of God. That's how I took it. When we talk about the kingdom, what will this world be like when God is running it instead of the knuckleheads that are currently running it? And how would we get from here to there? As you read this book and he unpacks all this and gives you all these examples, and a lot of it's convincing because a lot of the examples you just lived through, like the crash in 08 and that stuff, and like, whoa, what happened there? Well, here's, I mean, it really is something that you can really get a lot out of. So Cathenomics absolutely should be on your list of spiritual reading, I would say,
3: a little bit each day. Thank you both so much for the kind remarks about the book. I very much appreciate it. And I really enjoyed having the opportunity to discuss this with you. It's been a wonderful experience. So thank you so much for inviting me on and for all the work that you do for the church.
0: Special thanks to El Jefe, Paul Snatchko, and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, and of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org, that's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.